Welcome to Luxury News Weekly, your number one source for luxury news. I'm your host, Simba Wakatama. And I'm your host, Elizabeth Solaru. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Luxury News Weekly. Today, we've got everything from streetwear collaborations with luxury brands to Kim Kardashian selling really tight clothing, as usual, I guess. But our first story is a Tiffany & Co. collaboration with Supreme. This is a highly anticipated collaboration. We had heard rumors about this months ago, and so we're excited it actually came to fruition. Now, we did not know what to expect, but what we have is a very, um, let's call it interesting for now, collaboration. And then we're going to give you our take. So for those who haven't seen this, you can find pictures on Tiffany & Co.'s uh, Instagram or by searching Tiffany & Co. uh, X Supreme. And you will see a bunch of very street, simplistic chains with pearls and tags, um, bracelets, even keys with little knives in them. Uh, Yeah, and they have earring studs as well. Elizabeth, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, this was an exciting collaboration and they kind of almost broke the internet when they launched it. And one thing I must say is that they've got pretty passionate fans on both sides. Supreme uh, Supreme fans were very excited and they welcomed the collaboration. Meanwhile, fans of Tiffany were not that happy and both sides literally went on the Instagram pages of both brands to say so. I think for me personally, it's not a bad collaboration because all the pieces are in silver And they've done some quirky takes on Tiffany's, for example, please return to Tiffany & Co. New York, now reads, please return to Supreme New York 925. And the pieces are quite nice, I think. But I think for me, this is more entry-level luxury because the price ranges between £50 to £1,100. This particular collaboration was inspired by pieces that were originally launched in the 1960s by Tiffany. So you've got a heart tag pendant, you've got oval tag pearl necklace, you've got a star bracelet, you've got a heart tag stud earrings, you've got a heart key, a knife key ring, which actually, out of everything, that's what I find interesting. So for me, was it a hit? I give it one thumb up. For me, it's not quite two thumbs. I don't know if this will do Tiffany any good, but at least it shows that Tiffany is ready to broaden its horizons. Now, for some context, this is actually kind of the first big push from their campaign that is, it's not your mother's Tiffany right? It's not your mother's jewelry. Um, And yeah, this is clearly not your mother's jewelry because it's catered to men. That's the first thing. And Supreme is predominantly male-focused. And I think we've seen Tiffany & Co. uh, try to enter a little bit more of the um, manosphere, if you will, with 
engagement rings, with other kinds of offerings for men, and it hasn't been sticking very well. Now, on Tiffany's actual Instagram, I'm reading through the comments and it's unequivocally a no. But also, it's like 90% women commenting, right? Well, I do feel like Supreme fans will adopt this because it does have a bit of a street culture to it. I am quite underwhelmed. I'm quite underwhelmed. I've seen, for instance, Dior do a really good collaboration with Travis Scott for their uh, high jewelry, their fine jewelry. And it came out quite well, even though still being very street, very casual. This, to me, it's not bad, but it feels like a waste of a collaboration. And I think, ultimately, Supreme wins for this one, and Tiffany & Co. loses. It's kind of like when H&M did a collaboration with Carl Lagerfeld, and he's like, I'm never doing that again. Because H&M wins, and he loses. So that's my take. I give it zero thumbs. Zero thumbs. Ooh, that's a... That's harsh. <laughs> Zero thumbs. That is so harsh. Um, I do get what you mean. I completely agree with you. But yes, 90% of the people commenting on Tiffany's Instagram are women. But women tend to buy clothes and jewelry, etc., for their men. So if their audience is not happy, Tiffany needs to have another look at their strategy. Entering the male market is not a bad thing, but it needs to be very well thought out. And I think what's happened is Supreme are leveraging the higher brand and the higher value that Tiffany has in the market. They're leveraging it really well. Whereas Tiffany is thinking, maybe we can use this opportunity to enter into the affordable luxury market. But is that really where they want to go? Again, who knows? This is very shaky waters considering they were just acquired. And what we're seeing here is the beginning of a long-term strategy. We have to wait to see if it plays out because so far it's been miss after miss after miss which we thought was going to be hit after hit after hit. And uh, I'm sorry, but the sentiment is negative. Almost all of these comments are negative. That's, that's not good. Even though I don't think, um, I don't think anyone's saying the jewelry's ugly. I don't think anyone's saying it, it's not nice in a way, but they're saying it's not Tiffany. And that's what it really comes down to. Would I wear some of this? I think the only thing I would wear, personally, um, and I love Tiffany & Co. I don't care much for Supreme, even though, yeah, yeah, I don't care much for Supreme, but I love Tiffany & Co. I would wear the pearl with the, with the pendant. That's about it, with the dog tag. I'm kind of thinking Tiffany needs to ask itself, what business is it in? And I think what they're trying to do, and I can't remember the name of the car company. There was a car company who also adopted a similar slogan to the not your mother's jewelry kind of situation. And they also alienated their client base. So Tiffany needs to really ask itself, is it so bad to wear your mother's jewelry? If they have somebody like, 
Harry Styles, for example, because, you know, Harry Styles, he's very popular with millennials and Gen Zs and alphas. And would Harry really care? Harry seems to me like the kind of celebrity that would easily raid his mother's jewelry box. So Exactly. So that's where I think they've missed in terms of the brand strategy and pushing this message out. I wouldn't have gone with something it's not. I would not, again, branding, you know, any marketing major will tell you, you do not put a negative in a sentence. You need to say, raid your mother's jewelry box. You might be surprised what you would find. I would have gone with that. But then again, I do not handle the marketing Tiffany, but if they want to hire us, we're open. Exactly. But much like you said, you know, if you're in a transitional period, don't tell us what you're not. Tell us what you are. And I'm not seeing that here. Absolutely. And again, my last thought on this, does the young Tiffany customer want to be seen with the Supreme customer? Because the sentiment around Supreme in my generation, is that, yes, it's cool, but it's a hype brand. So they're their own clique. And when you're a little bit more Tiffany, you're a little bit more refined. You're seen as more refined. You actually care what your stuff is made of. You actually care about quality, about craftsmanship, and you buy it to keep. Supreme is buy it to sell. So fundamentally, I think the souls of the brand are opposing. And that's why it's kind of a weird collaboration, even though I thought this could be great, right? This could be a great marriage of street culture versus um, high-class, longevity, legacy culture, right? Well, I'm, I'm disappointed. That's all. Yeah, as you were speaking, it actually occurred to me that what they need is an Elsa Peretti to interpret collaboration for them. You know, I mean, God bless her soul, she died quite a few months ago, and we spoke about it in one of our rooms on Clubhouse. But when you're doing a collaboration, you need an incredible designer that truly understands the essence and the soul of your brand. And not sure who was responsible for this design collaboration, but mm, yeah, mm, not good enough. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That's it. <laughs> I will still give it one thumbs up. I will still give it one thumbs up there. Okay, okay. I, I can I can sleep with that. I can sleep at night with that. We are interrupting this episode to tell you a little bit about the people behind Luxury News Weekly. I'm your host, Simba Wakatama, the founder and CEO of Volo Bespoke. We personalize jewelry storage for the jewelry you wear. Find me on Instagram or LinkedIn at Simba Wakatama. I'm Elizabeth Solaru, founder and CEO of Luxury Business Emporium and Elizabeth's Cake Emporium. You can find me on LinkedIn as Elizabeth Solaru or on Instagram as Luxury Business Emporium. All right. Now, in other news, we have two NYC men behind bars for a $6 million heist. Okay. They finally got prison time. Now, they actually stole luxury goods from a JFK airport. So you must be thinking, well, $6 million worth of goods, what were they taking? Surely they were taking a bunch of diamonds and a bunch of really high-end jewelry. No, they were stealing pallets of Gucci and Chanel goods. 
right? So this was an inside job, actually. And they and through a couple of heists, they managed to steal thousands of items, mostly Gucci and Chanel. And then, uh, you know, that added up to the six million total. Now, they are expected to see at least five and a half to 11 years in prison. So this heist took place in 2020, but they only got arrested in March 2021. So the trial has been ongoing. And we'll see how this ends up going. But Elizabeth, what do you, what is your take on this? Well, this again, um, following from last week, I believe the wine heist, you know, wine gate that happened in a restaurant. Again, it's occurring to me that these thieves are getting so smart and so sophisticated with stealing because what they actually did was to go to the receiving office for an air cargo importer on January the 31st, 2020, and they showed the people in the office a forged document, and it had an airway bill and flight details for a Prada shipment. Both of them then enlisted the help of two others, and then they loaded the four pallets onto a tractor trailer, and they simply drove off. I mean, how audacious is that? They obviously found the truck and everything else involved in the robbery a few days later. But obviously the truck was empty and the interior, they actually covered the interior in bleach. So somebody has been watching crime programs. Now, here's the thing. When you steal goods to that amount, you've got to offload them. And I think they probably got caught in the offloading of these goods, because to move something that, you know, that that amount of goods, the sheer amount of goods to be moved will obviously make it easier for them to be caught. Because I don't know if they were selling to a wholesaler or if they were selling to certain individuals or maybe on eBay, who knows? So, and people buying nowadays, they want the goods authenticated. They will be looking for things like certificates, etc they would be asking for the provenance. So who knows? But yeah, very interesting, I thought. And I'm glad they've been caught. Yes, I'm glad they've been caught too. But it does make for a very interesting story. And the reason why they're able to to take so much of those uh, goods is because people don't really know, but pre-pandemic, most luxury sales happen in airports. Those are the most lucrative uh, touch points for luxury brands. So that's why they have just millions of dollars. If anything, this shows you the scale of the airport operation, even though it is a major one. We're talking about one airport, three brands, $6 million. So that think about how much they're selling in these airports. <laughs> I can imagine. And they timed it so well because there was obviously a major restock going on if you think about it, so that they, maybe they were restocking for, because if we look at the when, when the operation happened, it happened in January. So there must have been Christmas sales. So there was a major restock going on with all the brands. So with three major brands, Gucci, Chanel and Prada. Ah, very, very interesting. Very interesting timing. Yes, very interesting timing indeed. And speaking of absorbent amounts of money, our favorite watch 
watchmaker, independent watchmaker, has now broken the record and I guess solidified himself as the greatest independent watchmaker selling a watch for $5.2 million. Now, this comes at a auction, a watch auction, which shattered world records, okay, multiple, with a total of $74.5 million sold in that single auction. So we're talking about our favorite Philippe Dufour. Now, he had a number of watches at this auction, and we had spoken again about him on Clubhouse months before we anticipated this auction, but he led this sale, which they expected to only net around the 41 million mark and ended up netting, like I said, uh, $74.5 million. And that main watch that he sold, one of his yellow gold creations, which he makes completely handmade, and the name is Philippe Defoe Grand Petit Sonari. And this is the number one in yellow gold. The number three in yellow gold of the same watch kind by Philippe was so was actually originally made for the Sultan of Brunei. So this is the level at which we're operating here when we talk about this man. He is amazing. And one thing to note again, because we haven't spoken about it on the podcast before, he is a watchmaker that does not want his multi-million dollar watches to sit in a safe. He says that he wants the owner of the watch to wear it and care for it and learn it, discover it. And that's why I particularly love him as a watch creator. What's your take, Elizabeth? Wow. I mean, my first take is, would you feel safe wearing a $5 million watch on your wrist? Especially, well, you know, I don't mean to do down London, but especially if you're walking around central London, you can be a target for motorcycle gangs and pickpockets, etc. So, but I do understand the sentiment. He is a watchmaker's watchmaker. He is highly, highly regarded. He's a living legend and he has been rewarded for his diligence and his groundbreaking work. However, in that same auction, to, to, to um, deviate slightly, in that same auction was a massive surprise. A 64-year-old Omega Speedmaster, which is called, nicknamed the Broad Arrow, was actually sold for $3.3 million. And I'm thinking, but it's an Omega. Why has it sold for that much? Apparently, the reason is because the Hong Kong bidder, who was very triumphant, said, for the last century in China, the Omega has been the luxury watch because Chairman Mao actually wore an Omega. So lots of Chinese people feel that the Omega actually has its roots in China because of the love that Chairman Mao has for that particular brand. So for me, I think what I'm seeing and what we've definitely spoken about in this room is that wristwatches seem to be an investment class that many, many people have been investing in, especially after the pandemic. We just have record-breaking after record-breaking auctions. So for me, that goes to show that, yes, while Philip Dufour might want people to wear the wristwatch on their wrists, people are probably buying to invest. 
For sure. And at least Philippe's watch is not flashy. I don't think any person on the street would recognize this watch. One, because there's not enough of them to be popular. And two, it's very low key and it's a small watch um, in this particular case. So I particularly, I, I love this because it's super expensive, but you can actually wear it. And uh, obviously, if you're wearing this watch, you're probably not walking around in you know, sketchy areas. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm more proud of is that once again, we have Philippe Dufour solidifying himself as the goat of watchmaking, right? He outbid Omega, Patek Philippe. Uh, he outbid uh, FP Jorn. Like he outbid uh, Richard Mille, all of them. He wins. He wins. So congratulations to him. Yes, huge congratulations to the watchmaker extraordinaire. And we would absolutely love the opportunity to even have a sentence from him on Luxury News Weekly. But we keep hoping. We're going to put it out there. So Philippe, if you're listening, congratulations. And we would love to have you on the show. Absolutely. Now, in the area of department stores we often keep up with department stores especially because of the pandemic very much uh, changing the landscape in fashion and online retail and offline retail or as we call it brick and mortar we have selfridges they're in talks right now and this is supposed to be somewhat secret but it's not a secret anymore they're in talks right now of actually splitting up their company into various uh other companies that handle different areas. For instance, they want to sell off their e-commerce platform and separate it from their brick and mortar while also separating both of those from their retail investment arm, which apparently is bigger than both. So this is not a surprising thing, really. Uh, but what I found interesting is that for those who don't know, Selfridges is huge in the UK, but it was actually founded by an American, and now it's owned by a Canadian family. So, uh, Elizabeth, we're coming for you. <laughs> I know, right? You Americans, you Canadians, what are we going to do with you? But yes, in June this year, I think June, June, yes, June, July, Selfridges said, yep, we want to sell, and they were looking at a possible offer of four billion pounds for the department store. The department store, there's a branch in London, there are two branches in Manchester and one branch in Birmingham. And they are the cool luxury store in London. They worked so hard. At one point, they were much, much cooler than Harrods, I believe. And they definitely kicked Harvey Nichols because Harvey Nichols was another cool store, which was meant to be cooler at one point than Harrods, but they managed to knock Harvey Nichols off that spot. What interests me actually is that the same family that own Selfridges also own a really, really high end. I call it a grocery store, but it's much more than a grocery store. It's my favorite food store in the world. They also own Fortnum and Mason. They also own Primark. Now, Primark is a low-end store, but there are some incredible bargains to be had in Primark. 
So when I was digging into the family, they've got their fingers in so many different pies, as in they're like super, super wealthy. So right now, the Selfridges situation is very interesting because I think what they're probably trying to do is split up the, the parts of Selfridges and sell them off individually. So hopefully they will get more money. However, I learned that the that um, I think his name is Galen Weston, who actually bought Selfridges for about 600 million pounds. He died fairly recently. And people are saying that he would definitely be opposed to Selfridges being sold because he would not have wanted that. So it's interesting that his children are trying to sell Selfridges right now. Yes, and this family is called the Weston family, okay? And they're, funny enough, from Toronto. Now, in Canada, they also own huge chains. They own President's Choice, which basically has a monopoly on grocery foods. They own Loblo's, which, again, has almost a monopoly on grocery foods. They own No Name, which is the only alternative, cheap alternative to any of the grocery stores. They own Joe Fresh, which is also in Loblo's, but they sell fashion in the grocery store. I mean, they are just one of the wealthiest families in Canada. And they've kind of taken over a little chunk of uh, London as well. So I'm happy to see that, you know, this uh, Selfridges is being split off rather than shut down. And this will be similar to what happened to Saks Fifth, where they sold Saks Fifth and Saks of Fifth separately, and they separated the online sales from the retail store sales. So they all have different owners. It's not going to be the end of the world. If anything, it's going to make the prices competitive. The services should get better uh, because people are only focusing on one aspect, and they can't be covered by a more lucrative part of the business to allow a less lucrative part of the business to suffer. So I ultimately think that it's going to be a good um, good result as long as it's sold to a responsible uh, buyers. Yes, but the issue we're having right now that is that a lot of online luxury retail businesses have been booming and that's been driven in part by demand from China. So other groups that sell luxury goods have also invested into very high-end online platforms like Farfetch, etc. So I think this is a very clever strategy on Selfridges' part to separate the very, very lucrative online business from the bricks and mortar because right now, London prices in terms of in terms of rent, are extremely high, especially commercial property. And they might have a situation on their hands where many people may not want to return back to work after being on lockdown, especially Gen Zs and millennials are saying, why should I stand for 10 hours in a shop when I can work from home or I can do a bit of thing, you know, do a bit of social media management or something like that? and earn even more money. So in, there might be, I suspect there might be a situation similar to what's happening in hospitality right now, where a lot of hotels cannot get the staff to come back. 
So that might be the situation for certain high-end stores where they can't get the staff to operate the stores. So let's watch this space. Yes, indeed. Now, our last story for this episode, we have Kim Kardashian actually collaborating with Fendi to create Fendi Skims. So we've got Fendi X Skims collaboration, which is a Kim Kardashian, uh, you know, brand. And well, as far as I'm concerned, I have nothing particularly to be excited about in this regard, other than um, I'm sure this collaboration, which is for sale right now, is going quite well. Because if Kim is known for one thing, it is selling product. Yes, um, I'm I'm double sighing here. Um, as a businesswoman, I think she's amazing, and rumor has it that her mother might be retiring and her mother might be handing over the reins of their family empire to Kim. I think Kim definitely is an amazing businesswoman. Is she a great designer? Probably not. Does she know how to take advantage of an opportunity? Possibly. I think Fendi will also benefit from this because, again, they seem to partner really well with people. Skims, for me, is it anything special? Not particularly. Is the quality there? I really cannot tell. I suspect that probably not. It's not bad. The skims are not bad and she does them in different colors. I think she did purple and some bright pinks and blacks. But to be honest, for me, I'm not moved to buy but I suppose I might not be her demographic so so for me maybe half a thumbs up yeah I mean it seems like a very American fashion taste and um very um I would say Hollywood you know and so you know we're talking like LA like California or you know I don't know, somewhere warm. You're not going to be wearing this stuff in Canada. Let's just say that. <laughs> but what's interesting is that she's named all these things by different uh, places in America. So, you know, for instance, she's got a mock neck um, a long sleeve bodysuit and it's called in California. Then the other one is in Georgia. The other one is um, in Colorado. Uh, so, you know, the name naming them by places in America, I don't get it, but uh, I think it's clearly American, and that's what I'm getting from this. Will it have an international appeal? I mean, it's Fendi, so probably, but it's a little bit uh, too edgy for I would say most countries. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think it could be one of those that you buy the items to in as a, so, some sort of investment. Maybe you sell them later in 10 years on eBay. Who knows? I, uh, I'm i just not... I don't know how to feel about it. I think that's how I feel, if that makes sense. I think a lot of influencers are going to be wearing these, to be honest. I, I, I just think this is like photo shoot wear. Yeah, if you have the figure. <laughs> yes, definitely. Exactly. You know, but well... I don't know if Fendi has been particularly known for its uh, diverse figures, you know, and sizing. So Actually, then again, I'm going to give Kim this, um, you know, give credit where credit is due. 
the campaign, she did use diverse models and diverse body types. So it wasn't your typical high fashion models. She did, I must admit, introduce a lot of diversity into shooting the collection. So I've got to give her props for that. And yeah, I'm, I'm seeing the wider collection on the actual website seems more wearable, you know? Um, like there's some actual dresses here, some turtlenecks here. It's not all some gloves. It's, you know, I kind of like it. I think what we were looking at um, as far as Vogue's kind of selection is limited. But now that I'm actually taking a look at the full collection, um, I think there's a little bit of something for everybody here. Yeah, but I'm still not. I tell you what I'm not seeing. I am not seeing the frenzy. So, for example, when Beyonce dropped her something park, Ivy Park, that's it. When she dropped her Ivy Park, there was an absolute rush to get at least one item from that collection. With this particular collection, I am not seeing the same. I might go to a couple of things that have happened with the Kardashian family and their collaborations, where I think we've talked about it in one of our rooms where they drop a, 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 a new product and the new product is not quite up to par. And then they come out, apologize, fix it, and then they get publicity from that. So. People are kind of looking for what's the angle. When they drop a new thing, they're like, mm, is the quality going to be there? Mm, are they doing this deliberately? So I think maybe that's why, but I've certainly not seen the frenzy. I've not seen people go, oh my God, I've definitely got to have one of the collection. But I agree with you. It's ultra feminine. It's a, you know, it's, it's a good collection. But I'm just not seeing the frenzy. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good collection. It's a good collection. I think the, yeah. the pieces they're pushing out are the most out there pieces. But I'm looking at this like, yeah, it's a pretty decent collection. It could be it could be its own store, you know what I mean? It could be its own brand. Like this collaboration kind of fits into its own universe, right? Yeah. So uh yeah, you know, would I honestly I just don't care at the end of the day. <laughs> um Sorry. Look, I give credit where credit is due. It's not that I don't care because Kim Kardashian. I think she's done some cool stuff. I don't care because it's not special. That's all. I think that's the feeling. I think that's the general feeling that it's just basic bodysuits. Yeah. I've seen other day. brands do exactly this better. Like Pricks, for instance, which is a, another very popular American brand. They do it way better. It's not something that most people would be able to wear. But the point is, it's done well, right? And that's the, that's the basic idea. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think you've, you've, you're spot on. You've actually nailed it. I think that's what's missing for me. Because I look and I go meh and I forget about it. When you drop a collection like this with Fendi, it's got to be fairly memorable. And this is not that memorable. Unfortunately. Mm. Well, this has been all your stories for this week in Luxury News Weekly. Tune in every single Monday. And don't forget to follow us on all social medias. The link is in the notes. We will see you next week.